Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome in, everybody, to episode 227 of the podcast. It is Sweeping America, the Aaron Sports Podcast. We had a great show last week. If you missed it, Sean Farnham joined me. We talked all sorts of good stuff. The teams at the top of college basketball, the surprises down the stretch, what you need to know for over the next month in this sport, and another great show today. I will open, obviously, at the top. Look, there were four teams at the top of this sport for the last month, and basically they didn't move anywhere in the polls. Kansas, Baylor, San Diego State, and Gonzaga. Three of them lose Saturday, so I will go into the three teams that lost, which are obviously Baylor losing to Kansas, San Diego State, and Gonzaga, and just discuss what the losses mean. What, what Does it mean anything in terms of seeding, in terms of the NCAA tournament, in terms of regions? And if it does, who potentially benefits from it? I will then transition to uh, James Wiseman. Our whole buddy James Wiseman spoke for the first time. Uh, he spoke to ESPN's Adrian Wojnarowski earlier this week. Just some quick thoughts on that. Not going to overanalyze, uh, you know, kind of the thoughts of an 18-year-old. I will wrap my personal segment of the show with a couple teams that I think are trending in the right direction come March. You know, my job is to sit on my butt and watch as many games as I can while you guys actually have real jobs that actually impact the world and do good things. Meanwhile, I'm just sitting here watching basketball. Uh, but I think that there are... I picked four teams that I kind of believe that they range from a team that could be a 3-4 seed that could make the Final Four to a 7-8-9 seed that I think can make the Sweet 16, upset a couple higher-ranked teams, maybe make a little bit of run. So I will give you four teams to watch over the back end of the season, and I will wrap and then give way to a guest because I do have a guest on the back end. It is Rhode Island head coach David Cox. You might be thinking, you know, AT, why are we doing the Rhode Island coach now? And, and here's the reason why, right? So through the years since I've been doing this show, I've had the opportunity to have a lot of great coaches on this show. Chris Mack, Bruce Pearl, Leonard Hamilton, etc. But what I find so fascinating is that even within the sport of college basketball, it is almost as though there are coaches that live in different worlds and coach in different sports than guys within the sport. And what I mean by that is very simply this. David Cox is the perfect example. He coached at the University of Rhode Island. They are currently in Joe Lenardi's field of 68 as a bubble team, but because they're in the Atlantic 10, because they're a mid-major, they basically have no margin for error, right? Louisville can go and lose at Georgia Tech and lose at wherever the heck else they lost, Boston College or somewhere. I can't remember who. They lost to Georgia Tech and somebody. 
And they're fine. It doesn't matter. Duke can take a bad loss. Kansas can take a bad loss. And I'm not saying these teams have or they will. Kentucky can lose to Evansville, and it doesn't matter. They're still going to be a 2-3-4 seed. But Rhode Island and schools like Rhode Island, it is such a different world. It is such a unique uh, look at college basketball being in that bubble. And it's very fascinating actually with Rhode Island because they actually lost this weekend. Um, and so it was after I did the interview, but it doesn't change the fact that they just have a completely different world. And I think it was really fun to get his perspective. And I do think that you'll enjoy it. Now, before we get started, I do want to remind you, please make sure you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. You can do it on iTunes. You can do it on the Podcast Addict app. You can do it on Podbean. You can do it on TuneIn Radio, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure that you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. You can also rate and review the show. Give us a quick five stars like my new buddy, T.S. Cat did. T.S. Cat says that Aaron brings, brings it every episode. One of my favorite go-to podcasts with attention to detail that comes from a genuine joy I feel that he gets from college sports. Loving the hoops coverage this time of year. So TS Cat, thank you. I appreciate that. It means a ton. And what I'm just going to tell you is this, is you're absolutely right, TS Cat. You're the smartest person listening to this show because I really do love what I do. And I really am fortunate to do what I do. And I really do appreciate every one of you that listens. And I try to bring my excitement for covering these sports, college basketball, college football, the NBA draft, the NFL draft, whatever I'm going to be talking about on this show. I try to bring that excitement each and every episode. I think I do a good job of that. But it is great to hear from people who agree. So thank you, TS Cat. Finally, if you're not following on Instagram, Aaron underscore Torres underscore sports underscore podcast on Instagram, Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com. If you want to send in questions to the show, Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com. All right, let's get into the show itself because as I said, right off the top, uh, it really does start at the top because there have been four teams uh, when the NCAA tournament, if you remember, the NCAA put out this, this mock bracket about three weeks ago. And the top four seeds were Baylor, Kansas, Gonzaga, and San Diego State. And since then, up until Saturday, there was no movement at all at the top. All four of those teams won every game that they were going to play. And so we knew there was going to be some kind of change coming out of this weekend. But there were, because obviously, look, Baylor was playing Gonzaga, or Baylor was playing Kansas. But there was no way to know that in addition to one of those teams losing, that Gonzaga and San Diego State were going to lose as well. And so what I figured I'd do is just kind of recap. Obviously, the heavy emphasis will be on the Baylor-Kansas game, which may have been the game of the year. But uh, we'll talk about that, and then we'll just talk about these three teams. Does it change anything? Does the bracket get affected? And if so, who does it impact the most? And so, obviously, look, as I just said, I am going to start with the Kansas-Baylor game because it was phenomenal. It was everything it was meant to be and lived up to be and all the hype that it was supposed to be. It lived up to all that. Final score, 64-61 Kansas. Um, it was maybe the game of the year. It was just a phenomenal, well-played game. I thought Baylor had chances. Baylor missed a lot of free throws. I thought Baylor did some things tactically that I didn't like. And you guys know I'm not an X's and O, like, break down the film guy. But I do think it, it's relevant to this conversation, and that's really where I want to kind of start the conversation, is that my biggest takeaway in this game was very simply this. I have been very critical, me, Aaron Torres, of Bill Self through the years. I've been a guy that has gone after him for the stuff that has happened with Adidas. I've been very critical of 
the way that he handled the Snoop Dogg situation. And just in general, I, I think he's a brilliant coach, but I just don't like the way that he's run his program. Some of the guys that he's brought in that he knew would give them trouble. Yeah, I'm talking about Billy Preston, but I will tell you this. My biggest takeaway Saturday was very simply this. Bill Self's a freaking Hall of Famer for a reason, man. And whatever he was doing with Adidas, whatever he was alleged to have done, it doesn't change the fact that that guy is a brilliant X's and O's tactician. And I thought that was on display on Saturday. And what I mean by that is very simply this. First of all, it really goes back to even before this game itself, where for years, Bill Self had gone to this this kind of old school two big guy lineup. You know, you pound the ball into the paint and then you move the ball around. You either shoot a three-pointer, you get it down low. He scrapped that lineup about three or four weeks ago. And one thing that I always respect about coaches is the ones that are willing to throw away what they do well or what they prefer to do if their personnel can't do it. And this is why I always give John Calipari so much credit. Everyone wants to crap on John Calipari. John Calipari, every single season, has a completely new roster and has to figure out on the fly how to best get those guys to reach their potential in a six-month period. And there are years where he has an Anthony Davis or a Carl Anthony Towns and you feed the ball down low. There's years where he has the point guard in Tyler Eulis or John Wall and you go through those guys. Sometimes it's a wing player, Jamal Murray, Malik Monk, uh, Kevin Knox, whatever. But John Calipari is always changing what he does, and that's why I respect him. And so I bring that up with because with Bill Self, Bill Self had always played these two big guys. About three, four weeks ago, he realizes the guards on my team are my strength, and because of it, I have to play through them, and I have to go to a four-guard lineup alongside Adoka Azabuke. And by the way, I just lied, because when I said that the guards were their strength, Adoka as a bouquet is literally and figuratively their strength. And so I give Bill Self credit because he kind of switched up what he does. Everything now revolves around Devon Dotson, their point guard, Adoka as a bouquet, their center. And that was on full display on Saturday in Waco. For people who didn't see the game, I know most of you did. Adoka as a bouquet was unbelievable. He finished the game with 23 points, 19 rebounds. He shot 11 of 13 from the field, and he was just a one-man wrecking crew. And again, it goes back to what I said with the X's and O's. This isn't really like a Bill Self is amazing thing, but Baylor was not defending the pick and roll, and they kept running, and they kept running it to death and running it to death and running it to death. And Azabuke had so many dunks, uncontested dunks, and he was the difference in that game. Baylor had no answer for them. And this is also, by the way, where I should say, I'm not going to sit here and crush Scott Drew. Like, he had Baylor 24-1 and coming into this game. First of all, let me say that again. He had Baylor, not Kansas, not Kentucky, not Duke, not Louisville. He had Baylor at 24-1 and coming into this game. But I did not think he had his best game, Scott Drew, as a coach, and I'll tell you why. It's very simply this, is that what Kansas wanted to do was to feed the ball to Adoka Azabuke, and they kept doing it and kept doing it and kept doing it. That is not where the problem lies. Where the problem lies is that Adoka Azabuke is a 43% free throw shooter. And as I'm watching this game, I'm pulling my hair out because every single play for literally the first, you know, the first half into the second half until there was about six minutes to go, every single play was just Azabuke setting a pick at the top of the key, rolling, and Devon Dotson throwing him a pass and him dunking it down. And if you really go back and look at that game, 
nobody for Kansas really played that well outside of Azabuke. Baylor's guards basically neutralized Azabuke, or uh, neutralized Kansas's guards. Devon Dotson did not play fantastic. They did not shoot the three ball well, but Azabuke was the difference. And so this is where I'm frustrated with Scott Drew. Like, dude, this guy's shooting 43% from the from the free throw line. You gotta put him on the free throw line and make him beat you. I actually tweeted it during the game. And so to me, I give Bill self credit because he found something at work and kept going with it. But I I do have to be a little bit critical of Scott Drew because if I'm Scott Drew, heck, I'm Aaron Torres. I was sitting on the couch watching the game. You know, what I would just have done is put my 13th guy on the bench in the game and say, when Azabuke sets the pick and rolls to the basket, you grab him or you hold his arm or you, you know, whatever, throw a a shoulder into him, nothing nasty, nothing illegal, but you make him go earn it from the free throw line. That's why I thought Baylor lost the game. I would add, there was two or three times late in the game where Azabuke got a rebound off of a missed foul shot Baylor had a chance to follow him and didn't. Kansas comes down, runs the clock, gets a shot, whatever. So I did not think it was a great day for Scott Drew. I did think it was a great day for Bill Self because, again, he kept doing what worked. He kept not doing what didn't work. And then this was the part that I don't know if anybody else noticed this besides me. But late in the game, when it was time to foul, uh... He basically took the ball out of Azabuke's hands, and every time they would run the pick and roll with Devon Dotson, and Baylor's getting ready to foul Azabuke as Dotson should be throwing the ball up, Dotson held on to the ball. And so Dotson would hold on to the ball, he'd get fouled, he'd go to the foul line and make two foul shots, and they end up winning. And so, to me, I thought it was a great day for Bill Self, I thought it was a great day for Kansas, and I didn't think it was Baylor's best game, as I said Baylor barely shot 50% from the foul line. Baylor uh, had so many opportunities late, and they just couldn't convert. And it was just one of those days where, like I said, I didn't think it was the best day for Baylor. I will say, in the bigger picture, I don't know that I feel any differently about Baylor. I do feel a little bit differently about Kansas in a positive way. I'm going to get back to Baylor in a minute, but with Kansas, I will say, if you want to say that Kansas is or should be the national championship favorite, I can't really disagree with you right now. The way I look at it is very simply this. They know who they are. They have an incredible two-man game with Devon Dotson and Adoka Azabuke. Azabuke is a monster. He is the single toughest cover in college basketball. I will argue that right now he's a first-team All-American. I will argue that right now he probably should be in the National Player of the Year conversation. I don't know if he will do enough to get in it, but he absolutely should because he completely changes the dynamic of this team. Um, I love Devon Dotson. I love what he's doing. I love how Kansas is approaching these games. And then, like I said, I think the other guards that play complement each other. Isaiah Moss is a three-point shooter. Marcus Garrett is the defensive shutdown guy. And um, Ochai Abaji kind of does a little bit of everything. I will say, if you don't think Kansas is a national championship favorite, I won't argue with you either because I do think they have two very definitive flaws. And am I being a little bit nitpicky? Sure. Everybody has flaws. Nobody's perfect. This isn't the NBA. You don't get to go out at the trade deadline and trade for guys to make your team better. You don't get to sign free agents in the middle of the season or get buyout guys like in the NBA. So everybody has flaws. But I think Kansas has two pretty definitive flaws that I do think could ultimately cost them come NCAA tournament time. The first one, they don't, outside of Isaiah Moss, shoot the three ball well. I thought that was a very interesting development from Saturday. 
They were able to win that game. They only shot three of 13 from three-point land. And again, I just don't know if in the NCAA tournament, if Azubuke gets into foul trouble, can you win if you can't really shoot the ball, if you don't shoot the three-point ball well? As a team, they do not shoot the ball great. Now, as I said, Isaiah Moss shoots the ball well. He's their best three-point shooter. But outside of him, they shoot right around 35%. Not terrible, but not great. The second big issue with Kansas, very simply, is what I said a minute ago. Their best player, their most important player, Adoka Azubuke, shoots 43% from the foul line. And so I'm just saying, at some point, somebody is going to take the Aaron Torres approach to Azubuke, and if they're up by four or five points with six minutes to go, they're just going to start following him every time they come down the court. Now, Scott Drew wouldn't do it on Saturday, and I'm glad he didn't because it made for a more entertaining game. But at some point, somebody's going to do it. And they're going to say, Azubuke is a 43% foul shooter. We are going to make him beat us from the foul line. And and so to me, that's my biggest question about Kansas. Can you really win a national championship when your best player and most important player might not be able to play in crunch time? I don't know. But like I said, if you want to come out of Saturday and say that you believe that Kansas should be the favorite, I can't really disagree with you. As I tweeted, it is kind of amazing that our national championship favorite going into the tournament may be a team very much under NCAA investigation that also had, you know, strippers at their midnight madness. Uh, As for Baylor, real quick on Baylor, not going to spend a ton of time. I don't know that all that much really changed for me on them. I still think they're really good. I still think that even though Adoka Azubuke had the game of his career, they were in it late and had a chance to win. And it goes back to what I said a minute ago did not think it was their finest performance. First of all, their second leading scorer, Macy Oteague, had a bad wrist, barely played, so you have to factor that in. You should also factor in the fact that they went 8 of 15 from the foul line, which is just unacceptable when your whole team is a bunch of guards. And I'll also say that they do a really good job, even though they don't have a ton of size, of rebounding the ball. They actually were only out-rebounded by two. Kansas finished the game with 34 rebounds, 19 by Ezebuke, and Baylor had 32 rebounds. And so I think for people that watch them for the first time or don't know a lot about them, they probably saw a team that's really small, and you kind of think, well, you know, what happens when they face a bigger team, a stronger team, a more physical team? Well, they handled themselves pretty well. So I think Baylor is going to be fine. And as far as the number one seed conversation, we're going to get into a minute, but into it in a minute but Baylor will be fine there as well. Really quickly on the other two games, Gonzaga goes to BYU. And let me just say this. If you want, <laughs> BYU is ranked number 23 in the country. They're now 23-7. and seven. So I really hope that nobody is making this a referendum on Gonzaga, on if they have problems, on that they can't beat anybody. Well, BYU is the number 23 team in the country. They have 23 wins coming into yesterday. And I don't think you can say that's a bad loss, even though Gonzaga is obviously competing for a number one seed. And if you are saying it's a bad loss, you probably just don't know much about college basketball. Because to say this is a bad loss would be like if, say, um, I don't know, if Kentucky had lost to LSU the other day on the road. It's not a bad loss if Kentucky had lost it. Now, credit to Kentucky for winning, but it's not a bad loss if Kentucky lost it's part of the game. You go on the road, you play good teams. BYU's ranked number 23 in the country. We'll get to them in a minute when I talk about teams that you don't want to face in the tournament. But this was a team, they beat UCLA in Maui. They beat Virginia Tech in Maui. They're a really, really, really good team. And I actually thought there were more positives out of this game for Gonzaga than negatives. 
because I saw a team, BYU, this was the biggest game that any of these guys played at that school, at their time at that school. This was the biggest game at BYU in years. And you know what? Gonzaga had a chance to win it late. They were only down by four with about eight minutes to go. They couldn't hold on. And it came in a game where their two best players, their two two of their more important players, were terrible. Corey Kispert, who's shooting over almost 50% from the foul line, which is insane. I think he's shooting like 46% or something like that. Um, he goes one of 10 from three. By far his worst performance of the year. Joel Ayayi, my guy, Joel Ayayi, he, uh, he had his worst game of the season. And even despite it, even playing in the toughest road environment that they'll play in, a tougher road environment than almost anywhere in the country, uh, my buddy Sean Farnham, who was on this show, was on the call, said it was one of the great road environments that he's ever been in. Um, they had a chance to win late. And so I'm not worried about Gonzaga. I will tell you, Gonzaga, the issue with them that I have is the issue that everybody else has. Their best player, their most important player, Killian Tilly is very injury prone. He played on Saturday night. He should be fine going forward, but this is a guy that has missed big chunks of each of the last two seasons with injuries. I don't know that I can bet on them or pick them to win if their best player can go down at any given point. I don't think there's much to make of this loss. And I'll also say, I don't think there's a ton to make out of San Diego State's loss either. And I know you guys want to disagree. And, I, and the last couple episodes, listen, I've litigated and relitigated the San Diego State doesn't play anybody argument. If you don't believe San Diego State plays anybody, I can't help you with that. Now, I will say that was not a game they should have lost. That is not a good loss. That is one of the worst losses that a good team like them has taken. But this was a team that won at BYU. Creighton, which is now in second place in the, in the Big East. They've won nine out of their last ten outright. They're going to be in the top ten in the poll come Monday, San Diego State beat Creighton by 30 points. San Diego State beat Iowa by double figures. So I'm not going to get into the whole thing about does San Diego State, what does it all mean? All I'll tell you is this. They had a bad game. They did not play well. Um, they have been perfect coming into this game. And UNLV is a team that gave them trouble the last time. UNLV, while they don't have a great record overall, they've been basically good since Christmas. They've, they've been 11-6 and six in their last 17 games first-year head coach T.J. Otzelberger. He's doing a really good job. Funny story, I actually interviewed T.J. Otzelberger for this podcast at the Mountain West Media Day, and I never ended up running it. So by technical definition, by hazy definition, Otzelberger is a friend of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, but neither here nor there. UNLV gets the win. I am not going to tear down San Diego State for having one bad night out of 30 so far this season. I think they'll be fine. I do think it raises the interesting question, which all of you now want to know which is what does it mean for the bubble or what does it mean for the number one overall seed picture? And I'll tell you this, in the moment it felt huge. In the moment it felt like, oh my God, we could have all this shakeup. But as things have played themselves out, I'll be honest, I don't know how much it changed. And very simply for the reason why is this, is that for one of those teams to fall off the seed line, the number one seed line, it means that somebody else has to step up. And it was really funny because I saw Joe Lenardi on uh, one of the ESPN platforms say that he expects Maryland or Duke to eventually leapfrog them. Well, what happens? Maryland ends up losing on Sunday to Ohio State. So you knock them out, at least for the time being. Duke, to their credit, they are 23-4. and But they do have some tough games coming up. And I will also add this. 
they do not have as good of a resume as people think they do. And I know what you're thinking, it's Duke, and you know, there's no way, and by the way, will they probably get the benefit of the doubt if it's close? Yeah, they probably will. I've seen them get number one seeds in years they didn't deserve to be a number one seed. I saw them get the number one overall seed last year when they probably really didn't deserve it over some other teams, but their resume is not as strong as people think. Let me tell you why. They right now, and this is part of a byproduct of a really bad ACC, they only have five quad one wins. And for people who don't remember, quad one wins are like the ultimate, you know, the best possible wins that you can get in college basketball, according to the computers, according to the computers that the NCAA tournament uses to make the bracket. Duke has five quad one wins. You know how many quad one wins San Diego State has? Five. Quad two wins. Duke only has one more quad two win than San Diego State. And so if you look at their records, San Diego State basically has the same number of good wins as Duke, fewer losses overall, obviously, because they just lost for the first time, and their loss, San Diego State, isn't as bad as Duke's loss, which was to Stephen F. Austin. And so, like, listen, if Duke runs the table and wins the ACC, yes, they will be a number one seed. At that point, they would be, I think, 30-4. and four. They are not going to get left off the number one seed line. But they still have to play at Virginia, which always gives them trouble. They still have to play in the ACC tournament. And if they pick up another loss or two, I think it's going to be hard to make the argument for Duke. Again, they'll get the benefit of the doubt. They're Duke. They play in the ACC. But at the same time, you still got to win games. I think San Diego State wins out from here. I think they enter or they exit um, they exit championship week at like 30-1. and one. And I do think if they win... If they win the Mountain West Tournament, I think they will still remain on the one line. But again, part of that is what happens with Duke. I would also add, Saturday's results do shake some things up. I think if Gonzaga wins out, they are a lock to be the number one in the West. I mean, that was the big debate, right? So Kansas is going to be number one in the Midwest. Baylor is going to be number one in the South. And really quickly on Baylor, what I would say, Saturday's loss means nothing for Baylor. I think they could actually take another loss in the regular season and a loss in the conference tournament. That would still only give them four losses in the Big 12 with all these great out-of-conference wins, Arizona, Villanova, Butler, whatever. I think they could lose two more times and it won't affect their seed line. So we have Kansas in the Midwest, Baylor in the South, and I think with Saturday's result, with San Diego State losing, Gonzaga will be the number one in the West. Now the question becomes, can Duke jump San Diego State for the number one seed in the East? And then... Do you put San Diego State as the number two seed in the East, or more realistically, do you put them in the same bracket as San Diego State, and San Diego State and Gonzaga are the, the two and one seed in the West? So that's what kind of where we're at after Saturday. Hopefully that gives you a good rundown of whatever. Do want to hit on a couple other topics, though, and I do want to start with what I said at the top, is our buddy James Wiseman spoke for the first time, and we all remember James Wiseman. Number one recruit in the country, McDonald's All-American, seven foot, seven foot nine wingspan or whatever. I don't even know. I'm just making stuff up right now. And of course, he was at Memphis, played for Penny Hardaway in high school. We come to find out that Penny Hardaway gave James Wiseman's mom $11,000, 11500 if we're being specific, in moving costs to move the Wiseman family from Nashville to Memphis to play for Penny Hardaway in high school. Penny Hardaway gets the Memphis job. Because Penny Hardaway had previously donated to Memphis, he is considered a booster. 
It's a booster violation, and James Wiseman gets suspended 12 games. James Wiseman sits out about, I don't know, six, seven, eight games, decides, you know what? Screw this. I'm out. And he leaves. He decides to leave college basketball, get ready for the NBA draft. So for the first time, he did speak on Friday. He spoke to ESPN's Adrian Wojnarowski. And I just want to read you some of James Wiseman's thoughts and kind of give you kind of my thoughts on it. First, he says, and this is all from ESPN.com. I'm not paraphrasing. This is directly from ESPN.com. James Wiseman said, I was really in the middle of a hurricane. That's like the worst place you could possibly be. Just having to the ment- having the mental agony and the suffering, crying every night because I just wanted to get on the court so much. He continued, I wanted to have a great college career. I wanted to win a national championship. But throughout the course of the first two games, and remember, he did decide to play, or Memphis decided to let him play the first two games, everything started to go down in terms of my mental well-being. I was getting depressed. It was dehumanizing for me. I felt like it was unfair because they notified and alerted me at the last minute. Coach Penny told me about it. I was really down and shocked. When I got suspended for 12 games, I had to pay back the money. That was kind of surreal. I didn't really have any knowledge of the violation or the ramifications behind it. Um, He said it's surreal because he couldn't get the money, and now I'm starting to paraphrase. And then finally, and this was really, I thought, kind of interesting. Um, When he asked if, if the relationship had changed at all with Penny Hardaway. Wiseman says, it didn't change at all. We have a great relationship. We go way back. I didn't want to leave my teammates. I wanted to stay at the University of Memphis, but the mental depressing coming from all of it, having to deal with the media every day, it was a lot of mess for no reason. But I really wanted to stay at the University of Memphis. I really love those guys. I really love my coaches, but I had to make a decision on my own. And so there's a lot to peel back there. Um, And I would kind of start by saying this, is that what happened at Memphis very little of it is actually James Wiseman's fault. And so I want to start by saying I don't really blame James Wiseman all that much for what actually went down. Because as I said at the time, and as I've stood by, and I I, I truly mean this, it's really mostly the adults that screwed him in this. His mom screwed him by taking money when every parent knows. Parents are so well-educated that whether you like the NCAA rules or not, these are the rules. You got to abide by them. You can't take money. His mom took it anyway. And I do believe, by the way, that James Wiseman didn't know that his mom took money. Parents all the time make decisions that they think are best for their kids without consulting their kids. Again, I always tell you, take off the fan hat, put on the, the human element you know, aspect of it. There are times in life where you make decisions for your kids that you think are best. You don't always tell them why. You don't always tell them how or who. And this, I believe, was the case with James Wiseman. I do believe that his parent, that his mom took the money and did not tell him. Penny Hardaway also let down James Wiseman. Because at the end of the day, Penny Hardaway knows that if he's giving James Wiseman money, he could put his eligibility at, you know, at, you know, at risk. By the way, when Penny Hardaway took the Memphis job, Memphis should have immediately had this conversation with Penny Hardaway. And Penny Hardaway should have been immediately forthright with Memphis. And there's varying reports on how much Memphis knew or how much Penny Hardaway said when he took the job. But this should have been the first conversation that they had. Penny, we know you want to recruit the kids off your AAU team. Have you done anything for them that's going to get the school in trouble? And then if he says yes, then you handle it from there. I would also say... The NCAA is to blame. And you know I'm Mr. College Sports. I love college sports. The NCAA is to blame here. 
first of all, James Wiseman said it, and he is right, is that everything came down at the last minute. James Wiseman was cleared in May for all basketball activities, and then a few hours before the first game, they rule him ineligible. That's preposterous. If, if, if something happened in May, or if something happened, period, and you clear him in May, you can't come back six months later and say he's not eligible. And if he's not eligible, you have to let him know that he's not eligible as soon as it comes up. You work with him. You hope to get him eligible. You don't want to hurt a kid's future. And I do blame the NCA for that. Now, you can argue maybe some new information came out as the season got closer. I actually think that's kind of how it happened. I talked about it on the show at the time. It doesn't make it right. If you know this kid has eligibility issues, you help him right away. Help him get eligible. Help him get cleared. I also thought the 12 games was too much. He apologized. The school apologized. And I will say, you got to do away with the paying the money back. You just, you, you have to. You have to do away with the paying the money back. And I'll tell you why. Because there is no PR win, even if it's going to charity. There is no PR win when coaches are making millions, when athletic directors are making millions, when we have assistant coaches in college football making millions of dollars to not give any of the athletes anything and then expect them to pay back money in a situation like this. Now, do I believe James Wiseman could have gotten the money? Absolutely. If his mom could you know, scrape up $11,000 for moving costs, I'm pretty sure she could have gotten $11,000 from somewhere else. So the NCAA is to blame for a lot of this. I would also tell you I didn't like the comments from James Wiseman's perspective either in one particular reason. And it would cause me concern if I was an NBA team thinking about drafting James Wiseman. And it came in that last part where he said, I wanted to stay at the University of Memphis, but the mental depressing coming from it all, having to deal with the media every day, it was a lot of mess for no reason. And before I get into this, I want to say that obviously, look, in 2020. I get the idea about mental health. Everybody's going through something. Everybody's dealing with something. My wife works in the mental health field. It's a very serious thing that I take very seriously because I hear the stories that she comes home with. I'm not saying that if James Wiseman had anguish or anxiety that it isn't a serious issue. I'm not downplaying it at all. What I will tell you is this though. If he did have some kind of mental health issue, there was a different way to handle it besides completely leaving the program. We saw it earlier this year. DJ Carton plays at Ohio State, tells his coaches, I'm going through some anxiety stuff. I'm going to step away from the team, get my mind right. I'll come back when I'm ready. And if it really was about mental health, if it really was about depression, I know that there were good resources on campus, but to quit and to run away from the situation, I do not think is a good look. I'm not saying that I think he's soft. I'm not saying that I think that, um, I, that I don't care about mental health. That's not what I'm saying at all. I hope you guys all understand that. But if you're going through something and there is a mental health issue, there are resources available for you. But when you decide, when you face actual adversity, when you are in the hurricane, as you say, and rather than taking it on head on, you just run away and go on to the next step, I will be honest, that would concern me if I was an NBA team because there have already been conversations about how much does James Wiseman really love basketball. Does he play because he loves it or does he play because he's 6'11 and he knows that even if he stinks, he'll probably make $100 million over the course of his career? Those are questions that are going on 
And so if I'm a GM and I now hear that things got really tough and he quit the team and ran away, that would worry me a little bit. What happens when you have a couple bad games in the NBA? What happens when things aren't going right in the NBA? What happens when you miss a big shot in the playoffs to lose a game? I need to be able to count on you, and I don't need you to run away or to quit or to move on to the next thing when things go bad. And again, I hope you understand. I'm not saying that mental health isn't serious. I'm not saying that if he has real anxiety issues or mental health issues, he shouldn't get them solved. But the way he put it, the fact that he left, the fact that he quit, I will tell you, it does cause concern with NBA teams. Cole Anthony could have shut it down, could have used the injury excuse. Cole Anthony is still playing, not even on a good team, I might add. Zion Williamson could have quit, could have shut it down. He kept playing. Anthony Edwards, if he shut it down now, it wouldn't really affect Georgia's season because they're not good. He's still playing. And so I do think this is going to be an issue with James Wiseman. And I do think, I don't know that this interview really helped him. He's going to have to answer these questions at some point. I don't think it changes the fact, though, that it did not help him. All right, really quickly, because I'm already going way long here. Oh, my goodness, 35 minutes. I'm insane. As I mentioned, by the way, David Cox, the head coach of the University of Rhode Island, is coming up. But I do quickly, I want to wrap with what I told you off the top. Four teams that I think you should want to avoid in your NCAA tournament bracket. And I think it's this time of year, right? Again, what I said at the top, you guys know about Kansas, and you know about Kentucky, and you know about Louisville, and you know about Duke, and you know about Villanova. But you also, there are other teams that maybe you don't know as much about, that maybe you need to learn more about, that maybe you want to know more about, and you just don't have the time to watch the games. That is why I am here, and that is why, like I said, I want to give you four teams that I do think you need to watch out for come tournament time. Everybody's profile is a little bit different. So I want to start with the Creighton Blue Jays. And I've talked about them a little bit on this show before. Creighton is different from the traditional kind of quote-unquote team you're going to watch out for because I think they're trending now where they could be a three or four seed come Selection Sunday. This is a team that has won, I think, nine of their last ten. Ironically, the one game they lost, I was actually at. They played at Providence and lost. And this team is really good. And the reason that they're trending as a three or four seed, one, because they've won nine of ten, they're great on the road. They've already won at Nova. They've won at Seton Hall. They've won at Marquette. And they figured out their lineup. This is what's so interesting about Creighton. They had a kid get eligible at the mid-year point named Denzel Mahoney. He was a transfer from another school. He gets eligible in December. And Greg, uh, Greg McDermott, the head coach, even said after their win, by the way, they beat Butler by 30 on, Saturday, on Sunday. He said it took us a while to figure out how to use Denzel. But the issue with Creighton, they're very small. They have great three-point shooting. They have a phenomenal guard named Marcus Zagorowski. He pushes the ball. He plays. He's going to play in the NBA at some point. His, his stepbrother, or his, excuse me, his half-brother, Michael Carter-Williams, actually plays for the Orlando Magic. He's their point guard. He pushes it. They have great three-point shooting. Tyshawn Alexander is one player you need to know. Mitch Ballack's another player you need to know. And... Denzel Mahoney was kind of the missing piece because they had no size down low. They had nobody that could mix it up. And he's not really a big guy. He's only about 6'6", six, 6'7", six, six, but the way that he plays, he can play with those guys. He can play fast. He can move the ball. He can take the ball up court. And really, since he's got that, t- since he's gotten comfortable, that team has gotten rolling, as I said, 9 of 10. I think right now they're playing better than anybody in the Big East, including Seton Hall, who's in first place. I don't know if they're the best team. I don't know if they'll be the best team at the end of the season. 
but they are playing insane right now. And they're a three seed, four seed that, you know, if they get, say, Duke or they get, say, Maryland or whoever in the Sweet 16, they could get hot from three and it could be over. They could be in the Elite Eight. They could be playing to go to the Final Four. They are that kind of team. Second team I want to talk about, I already talked about a little bit. How about those BYU Cougars? How about those Cougs? Um, You know, really with BYU, what it really comes down to very simply is this. The season was stop and start all year, and they just could never get all their guys together. So their big center down low is a kid named Yoeli Yoeli Childs. I always call him Yoeli because it looks like it's spelled Yoeli, but it's Yoeli Childs. He gets suspended for nine games by the NCAA because of he he didn't fill out his paperwork correctly when he removed his name from the NBA draft. Kind of stupid, I'll admit it. Doesn't play early. The team plays well without him. They go to Maui, as I said. They beat UCLA. They beat Virginia Tech. He gets back. He gets cleared to play. Then he gets hurt. And so they haven't had their whole team around him. But now that he is back, they're a complete team. And like I just said with Creighton, like I said with Kansas earlier, they basically have four guards on the perimeter that all shoot the you-know-what out of the ball, and they are excellent. They have a kid by the name of Jake Toulson who transferred with Mark Pope. Mark Pope is, of course, the head coach. He played at Kentucky. He is now at BYU. Jake Toulson shoots 46% from three. Alex Barcelo, who is an Arizona transfer, shoots 49% from three. And T.J. Haw shoots 38% from three. He's a fifth-year senior who has literally been there for what seems like 100 years. So BYU, they just shoot the ball so well, and they are so deadly, and they are just now starting to get comfortable in their own skin as they have gotten all their puzzle pieces back. And listen, they beat Gonzaga. They played San Diego State tough. So this is a team that can literally play with anybody, and they're a team that I think they're going to be a seven-seed and I think they're going to get a Louisville, or I think they're going to get a Duke, or I think they're going to get a whoever, and they're going to scare the crap out of them. I would not be surprised to see this team in the Sweet 16. I think they are that good, that kind of team. One team that is not like BYU at all, Illinois. I like Illinois a lot, and they're completely different than the two teams that I mentioned, and ironically, the team that I will mention after this. Illinois does not shoot the ball well, but what they are is they're super tough. They got the kid down low, Kofi Coburn, monster. He's about 280. He looks like an NFL tight end, and he is so tough. He is so physical down low. They have a point guard named Ayo Desumu. When when Illinois struggled over the last four or five weeks, Ayo Desumu was out with an injury. He came back. They're playing much better, and they just have so many guards that are so tough. They defend their you-know-what off, and they're so physical. They rebound the ball well. I like Illinois, another potential seven seed. They're just going to play a team that they're just tougher than, and they could be playing on the second weekend. Finally, Kind of weird to say that a team that is currently in first place in a power conference is a team to watch, yet here we are with Arizona State. And Arizona State's kind of a crazy thing, right? Because every year, they start off so hot. A few years ago, they won at Fog Allen Fieldhouse. They beat Xavier when Chris Mack was there. And this is the time of year where they always fade. And this year, it's the exact opposite. They, they started off really slow. They struggled out of the gate. They took some bad losses early. Not terrible losses, but but not great losses either. And they have gotten red hot over the last month. They have won, I think, eight in a row coming off a sweep of Oregon, Oregon State this weekend. What you need to know about them is this. First of all, they have a point guard named Remy Martin. Yes, Remy Martin, that's his real name. And it's funny because I saw him. 
He played at Sierra Canyon many years ago before Sierra Canyon had Bronny James. He played with Marvin Bagley. Marvin Bagley with the Sacramento Kings. And I saw this kid, Remy Martin. Marvin Bagley was a star, and I remember seeing him play. And, you know, you saw right away why Marvin Bagley was a future lottery pick. But they had this little point guard who was just this jitterbug, uh, energy, just diving on the floor a million miles an hour. And I remember I had a buddy at the time that I worked with. I said, that kid is committed to Arizona State. You are an Arizona State fan. And I'm telling you, that kid is a program changer right there because he plays with so much energy and so much toughness and he's 100 miles an hour. He's, he gives 100% every single day. Those are the kind of kids that you need in your program to take it to the next level. That's exactly who Remy Martin is. And now he is playing like the potential Pac-12 player of the year. He's averaging 19 points a game, four assists, two steals. He's phenomenal. They have two other guards on the perimeter that are really good. They're not big, but they're fast as all. You know what? Alonzo Verge, who's a uh, Juco transfer, and Rob Edwards, who's a traditional transfer, and they're a lot like a lot of these teams I mentioned. They just play really fast. They get up and down the court. Uh, they create all sorts of problems. And I'll tell you this. They are now playing for first place with UCLA this Thursday night at Pauley Pavilion. I'll actually be across town. I'll be at the USC-Arizona game. But Arizona playing for first place. Quick shout-out to, to Mick Cronin. I should do a UCLA segment at some point. Tonight is not the night. Mick Cronin is doing, I think, as good of a job as anybody in college basketball right now with what he has done at UCLA. But again, there's another time to talk Mick Cronin at UCLA, and that isn't today. All right, I've talked enough, and boy, did I talk. I talked a lot tonight. I think that's it for my portion of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. As I mentioned coming up, David Cox, University of Rhode Island head coach, he will join me. And again, I wanted to bring you the other side of college basketball. We see the glitz and the glamour and the lights and Chris Mack with Louisville, you know, coaching in front of 18,000 people at the Yum Center. What is it like to be at a school where basically every single game is a must win all season long? So David Cox talks about that. Um, he talks about his Rhode Island team, what you need to know. They're another team that you're going to want to get to know come tournament time. They're going to be a 7, 8, 9, 10 seed. You don't want to play them. He's going to talk about how good Dayton is. He actually talks about Dan Hurley, who's obviously at the University of Connecticut. Um, he talks about Dan Hurley, his mentorship. It's a really fun interview, and I think you'll enjoy it. So that is it for me right now. I want to thank you guys for listening. That's it. I will be back later this week. I should mention, mega guest later this week. I can't give away just yet who it is, but it will be a big-time guest. I don't want to give away any secrets, but let's just say the man has a jet. Uh, that's all. That's it for now. Uh, I will be back later this week. Shout out to my boy Torrent Craig, the Australian legend. Shout out to Rachel who hates my voice. This must have been a tough show because I talked a lot today. And that is all for this segment. Now it is time for David Cox from the University of Rhode Island, the head basketball coach as the Rams pursue a potential NCAA tournament berth. I should say too, you learn some interesting stuff about Aaron Torres in this interview. That's all. Here is Rhode Island coach David Cox. All right, and joining me on the phone now, he is the head coach of the University of, University of Rhode Island, currently as we speak, a nine seed in Joe Lenardi's most recent bracket, 19-6 and six overall, second place in the Atlantic 10 Conference. Coach David Cox is on the phone. Coach, how are you doing today? I'm doing wonderful. I appreciate you having me on today, Aaron. Well, I appreciate you coming on, and so I'm going to give my audience, you know, uh, the thing about me is I'm 100% transparent, but there's not 
everything that everybody knows about me. And one thing that very few people know, I went to the University of Rhode Island for one year. Um, I'm known as a little bit of a UConn guy, which whatever, we'll talk about in a minute with Coach Hurley. But um, and, and one thing in my time at Rhode Island – I saw the passion for Rhode Island basketball that the state has, that the community has, and I've always considered it kind of a little bit of a sleeping giant uh, program. Yeah. Maybe you've woken it up a little bit, you and Coach Hurley, over this past you know five, six, seven-year stretch, but tell people that have never been to Rhode Island, that have never been to the Ryan Center, just the excitement and enthusiasm and, and what you guys do for that community, because like I said, I don't think a lot of people really know that. Sure, and no, I appreciate it. Well, first of all, it's a... Uh it's a wonderful state. Uh, you know, my, my family has, has been pleasantly surprised about, you know, with the beauty, the scenic, uh, 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 the food, the people here uh, in the state of Rhode Island. And as you mentioned, they are absolute, absolutely fanatical about their college basketball. Now, there is another, you know, there is another university yeah. <laughs> here in this, in this small state, and it's kind of like the Hatfields and, and McCoys, but Rhodey Nation is, you know, extremely strong, extremely passionate, as you, you remember, you know, being, being at the University of Rhode Island for that, for that one year, I'm sure you were able to, to kind of witness, you know, the enthusiasm of, of these fans, you know, for their uh, Rhodey basketball team. Well, I'll tell you this. I'll actually give you a good example of the passion that the fans have is uh, you mentioned that other program in the state. And uh, for people who haven't figured it out, let's just say they wear black. They play in the Big East. We don't have to say anything else. But there we go. the year that I was there, there was this um, – I don't know about historic, but there was a massive, massive snowstorm the day of that game. It was a Saturday. I believe it was the – winter of 2003 or the January of 2004. It was the 2003-2004 school year. And I only okay. bring that up because despite the snowstorm, and part of it was, I get it, it's a rivalry, there was not a single empty seat in the Ryan Center that night. Uh, and that, yeah. that was one of my funnest experiences there. I know it was long before you were at Rhode Island, but I think it speaks to the passion. Middle of a snowstorm, rivalry game, there wasn't a seat to be had in the house. Yeah, no, absolutely, it does. And then you just got to remember, there's there's no pro sports team in the state of Rhode Island, and you know what? You know the the local pro sports teams they have done so well in their in their histories. Whether you're talking about the Bruins or the or the or the Red Sox or the Patriots, that you know it just it spawns a lot of you know fanatical uh, fans, and uh, you know we, we benefit from that as well. So I, I mentioned a minute ago that that you did take over for Coach Hurley, and he obviously uh, you know is part of the, this process. Um, what was that experience like? I mean, you, because a lot of coaches, when you take a job, uh, you don't know the area. As you said, your family was, I'm sure, settled there. You'd been there for an assistant for two or three years. But Coach Hurley yeah. leaves for UConn. Um, and and you and it's it's a very rare experience. You know the players, you know the community. You don't have to find a new house. What was that yeah. experience like? Kind of just getting the job, and and then obviously you know building this thing up, kind of with your own fingerprints on it. Well, first of all, I think we should just start with with, with Danny, who uh, who uh, who put me on board here, and I'll forever be grateful and thankful to him for that. He also, you know, kind of gave me my wings. He gave me my voice as far as uh, you know the associate head coach. You know, so I, I learned a lot under under Danny about the culture and about how to you know how to be a head coach. And so when he did transition, you know, over to UConn and uh, and supported me and backed me, you know, to become the next head coach here. The transition was made a lot easier because I had spent 
you know, of the previous three or four years here in the state. I was familiar with the university. My family had already made the adjustment, and I had recruited a number of the players. And because I had been with Danny, helped building and establishing the culture here, you know, that transition part was relatively, you know, was relatively easy. Now the coaching uh, that was a little bit different. <laughs> you know, it took a, it took a little while to make to make that uh, adjustment. Things just kind of happening really, really fast. And uh, you know, I think I'm settling in pretty well. How do you envision kind of the future of this program? Because you know, it, it's such a unique deal. You're in the A10, which quote-unquote isn't one of the power six in college basketball, but you do have the support from a large portion of the state. You are a state university. You're in a conference in the Atlantic 10 with many programs that are well-supported. And knock on wood, we're looking at a potential third NCAA tournament in four years. I mean, how much can this thing, how much bigger can this thing get at Rhode Island? Because it feels like, again, credit to Coach Hurley, credit to the stuff that you guys did, but you continue to keep this program at a high level. And as I said, trending towards a, a nice seed in this year's NCAA tournament. I'm sure you want to keep it going after that. Yes, no, absolutely. And, you know, I was asked that question er earlier by some of our reporters post-practice, and this is not to be disrespectful at all to you or that question, but to be perfectly honest with you, Aaron, I can't even think about <laughs> next year, two years, three years down sure. the line. I've got five regular season games left, you know, and we we're on fragile footing because we're not in a power five, yes. and we've got We've got to kind of keep our, our foot on the metal here. And we've got five very, very tough games, you know, starting with Davidson on the road this, this weekend. So our focus has been, you know, daily just to get better and to attack the day. And then weekly it's been just on the next opponent. You know, I'm hoping that we can obviously sustain the success, finish out the year strong, and make the tournament, you know, again. And then after that, I, I do think, you know, the sky's the limit for this particular program because of the support of the school and the administration here. And as you mentioned, you know, it's just, it's a beautiful place to go to school, a beautiful place to live. And, uh, you know, I just think there are a lot of good things going on in this area, and particularly at the University of Rhode Island. I'm just, for people who've never been to campus, it's about 15 minutes from the beach. So they got that as a selling point. And uh, like I said, I've always had a soft spot for URI kind of in my little basketball heart here. For people, let me, let, me, let me kind of make it simple for you. For people who don't know, I mean, we're all looking for that team that, that could make a run or how does this match up. But you are, as, you, as we've discussed, you're in position right now to potentially get an at-large bid if things go well the way that we all, you know, certainly you hope they will over the next five games. Just for people that sure. haven't had a chance to, to see you guys, to see you guys play, just give us a little bit of a scouting report, no inside information that you know nobody else has access to but just for people that that want to kind of wrap their arms around who Rhode Island is as we get set for the NCAA sure. tournament well actually first of all I think we're a pretty entertaining team you know we do get after basketball extremely hard and competitive you know our culture has been built on the defensive end you know so we kind of hang our hang our hats on playing really tough hard-nosed physical in-your-face defense because of our lack of depth we're not able to a whole lot of pressing, uh, but you know we do play very, very good half court, half court defense. And then the offensive end, we've got some pretty dynamic players. And you can start on the perimeter, you know, with Jeff Dowden, the senior, and Fats Russell. You know, I think those are probably two of the most unheralded, you know, guards in the country. And then when you add the sophomore Tyrese Martin to the mix, I think we have, you know, those three guys. With those three guys, I think we have, you know, one of the best, uh, if not the best, backcourt. In, in, in our conference, um, we've got another uh, 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 animal uh, in the paint by Cyril Langevin. He's a senior. He averaged a double-double as a junior, and uh, he's, he's 
You know, he's fighting to get his 1,000th rebound this year. So 1,000 mm-hmm. points score and 1,000 rebounds, you know. Um, so uh, just the way we play, I think, is, is, is pretty entertaining entertaining to watch, and we do, we do really get after it. So I would ask, you, you brought this up, and, and I think this is kind of a fascinating element, and this is one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on. You know, I've been very fortunate to get a lot of guys on this show um, you know, I had Bruce Pearl on a few weeks ago, Leonard Hamilton, but you know, those guys live in a different world than you guys do. And this is no disrespect to them or any power conference program, but you know, we all watch the games and listen, a team in the ACC or the big 10 or the big 12 or whatever, they can afford a bad loss or for that matter, two, three, four. And you just brought it up a minute ago. And so I wanted to follow up there. Just take the fans that don't follow quote unquote, I don't want to call you a mid-major, but you're somewhere in between, but, but don't follow that level where I'm so amazed by the the pressure cooker that you guys live in that you can't take a bad loss or it hovers over you all year. Fill in the blank team can lose at home by 20 to a team that they have no business losing to. And we just brush it off and move it aside. You guys, Dayton, VCU, uh, uh, San Diego State, whoever it is, you can't take a bad loss or it could kind of blow up your whole season. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, you, you, you said it all. And it is, it is a pressure cooker because of the, you know, because of the net and the Ken Palm and because of how heavily weighted they are for the Power Five programs and, and, and top 100 quote unquote team, you know, in the quad one and quad two. Unfortunately for us, you know, the non Power Fives, we typically have you know, maybe a quad one or quad two in our conference, perhaps a quad, you know, a quad two, you know, one or two of those. And then we'll have several quad three and quad fours. Any of those losses can eliminate you basically from the tournament. Not to mention in the non-conference, you've got to take some chances. You've got to go after some top 50, top 75, you know, games. You're probably only going to get those on the road and or neutral site. And you've got to try to, you know, come out with some of those, some of those victories. Our non-conference schedule was very, very challenging this year. Our second game was at Maryland. We also went to West Virginia, and we also played LSU, you know, and in uh, Jamaica. Uh, and you couple that with Alabama, Western Kentucky, and Providence, and then this slate of games in the conference play. Yeah, any bad, any any bad loss, you know, can maybe put you on the, the wrong side of the bubble. So there's your fragile footing, and, and yes, that causes. A lot of sleepless nights and a lot of discomfort for for head coach, particularly in, in this league. Fantastic, and and I, I wanted that perspective. Um, you know, I, I did also kind of want your perspective on something else. Dayton, I think we're beyond the point where people are questioning how talented this team is. But for anybody that's on the fence or they they haven't watched them since the Maui Invitational, they are in your league. They will be joining you uh, in the NCAA tournament. Hopefully, if everything goes well over these next five weeks, just take the fan inside you've played as you said West Virginia Alabama Maryland how good is this Dayton team on the national scale unbelievable yeah, yeah un- just un- un- unbelievable I've got to give Anthony credit Anthony Graham sorry uh, a-, a lot of credit I mean a lot of credit because when you watch them you obviously see their talent you know and it's hard to you know with this the millennials these days, you know, it's kind of hard to mesh talent sometimes. Sure. And he's got those guys playing so well together. And, and the one stat, the only stat you really need to look at is assists per game. And I mean, I think they're top 10 in the country with assists per game. So they play extremely well together and they're extremely talented. When you talk about Crutcher and Toppin, you know, those are two without a doubt, big time high major players. Not guys 
you know, who can play at the high major level. That this league is littered with high major, you know, players. But those guys were produced big time at high major level. And then they've got so many other, so many other pieces. And like I mentioned, Anthony Grant is, you know, one of the best coaches in, in, in the country. So, you know, it, it, they're just they're unbelievable. Uh, they've got athleticism. They've got skill. They've got versatile. Pieces. And then playing them out there, which we have the opportunity, you know, about a week or so ago, is just a whole new experience. You know, that the Dayton, the Dayton basketball program, uh, and and how they embrace that program, the state embraces that, the city of Dayton embraces that program. Uh, it simply. And I would say this too. You know, I had Sean Farnham from ESPN on a few days ago. You said that there's only one stat that matters with them. There's a second stat. That's that they're 24 and two. And they haven't lost in 2020. And so, you know, Sean brought up the point of when we talk about these San Diego States or Rhode Islands or Dayton's, whoever, you got to win the games. And I don't think these teams get enough credit uh, for all of their success uh, and just how hard it is to win night in and night out. You're on a very limited schedule. So I I, I do want to get you out on two quick questions. The first one, I mentioned I'm a UConn guy. Uh, A lot of UConn fans listen to this show. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you uh, as best you can, because no one can. But please take me inside of the head of Dan Hurley. Um, and you know, as a as a competitor, obviously, if you ever see him, you want to beat him. But what can a UConn fan expect from the guy that you used to work for and work with daily over these next couple of years in stores? I think three things I want to say about Danny Danny Hurley. One, he's a man with a huge heart. He loves strong. He loves his staff. He loves his players. He loves his family. That's why he's such a great recruiter, and that's why people don't normally leave his program. Two, pretty obvious, he's the ultimate competitor. The ultimate competitor. He's actually at his best. He's really at his best when his back is up against the wall. When we were when we were together at Rhode Island, there were a number of times where our backs were up against the wall, and he would come in the next day while everybody else was somewhat, you know, down or, or confused or a little bit leery about what do we do next? And he would come in with so much energy, ready to attack the day, you know, um, that's because he's the ultimate competitor. And then the third thing is, he's smart as a whip. I mean, he's a, he's the son of, you know, a, a, a Hall of Fame coach. And, uh, you know, he didn't miss a beat. So, you know, it's not just all about, you know, uh, 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 physicality and rah-rah with Danny. He's extremely smart. He's a great basketball mind. He'll make, you know, lots of adjustments when necessary. Or he'll, you know, he'll stick to the same thing if it, if it causes for it. Um, so just a tremendous basketball mind. All right, last question. I'll let you out of here. I was doing some research before I got on the phone. Um, I saw that, you know, like so many people early in your career, you begin your coaching career. Then there was a five-year break where you were an assistant principal and did not coach. Um, do you miss being an assistant principal, I mean, I feel like it was a lot of parent-teacher. Listen, I feel like there's probably some parallels with, you know, knucklehead kids doing stupid stuff, you know, pot behind the bleachers or whatever, parents arguing with you. I feel like there's actually probably a lot of parallels now that I'm talking it out. Yeah, no, absolutely. So when I graduated from from, from William & Mary, uh, um, I went immediately to uh, secondary school. So my first job was an assistant dean of students at Archbishop Carroll High School in D.C., and then I spent seven years at my alma mater as the assistant principal. Uh, so that's 10 years in total uh, of secondary education. Uh, uh, my seven years as assistant principal were at St. John's College High School in D.C., and I treasure, you know, that time. I really, really, and truly enjoyed uh, my interaction with the, uh, uh, the kids. 
Uh, and that's what also kept me, you know, kind of uh, wanting a little bit more as far as, well, I've always been a basketball guy, uh, but I wanted to t- take my game to the next level. But I tried to figure out what was my niche and, and just that experience with those high schoolers, you know, kind of led me to believe that I would be, you know, pretty solid to communicating with them as they got a little bit, as they got a little bit older. So, you know, it was a, a great experience. The, the adults actually was, <laughs> was the biggest issue, not necessarily, not necessarily the, uh, the parents. But, uh, you know, some good, good life lessons, you know, uh, basketball, again, parallels life in so many ways. So I, I'm, I'm blessed to have this and humbled to have this opportunity and to be able to impact, you know, a lot of these young men's lives in, in, in a way that's not just about basketball. Fantastic. David Cox, the head coach of the University of Rhode Island, as I said, uh, trending towards an NCAA tournament berth. We're actually recording before their game against Davidson on Saturday. Coach, uh, I genuinely appreciate the time. You have my number. Uh, You can call me anytime. You're always welcome back. I really enjoyed it. Uh, Thank you. Go Rhodey. That's all I got, man. Sounds good, Aaron. I appreciate you having me on, partner. Take care.